Daniel chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. If you would, stand for reading of the word of God. We honor God by standing when we read his word. So Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dur in the province of Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to, get, to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image in which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So, the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, languages, at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, the psalter, and symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately in the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. So at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, in sympathy with all kinds of music, all the people, nations, languages fell down and worshipped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, and psaltery in symphony with all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast in the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have set over the fairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now if you are ready, at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, the psaltery, the symphony, and all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this manner. That is the case our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Now, as you know, this is a very famous childhood Bible study or Bible story. But there are some really deep things that we can learn from this in just a few seconds. So, we will not bow. That is the title of this talk. We will not bow. Remember, the theme is God's sovereignty over nations, over rulers, and over people. You think that your life is just going the way you want it to go? Look, at God is intervening at so many different stages that it's unbelievable. Now, we talk about sovereignty and what sovereignty really means. And I mention the word often. In simplistic terms, it's God's ultimate rule over his, over his creation, his ultimate rule over his creation. A.W. Tozer helps us with this. He says this, God's sovereignty is the attribute by which he rules his entire creation. And to be sovereign, God must be all-knowing, all-powerful, and absolutely free. 
He must possess all knowledge where God lacking one infinitesimal modicum of power and knowledge that lack would end his reign and undo his kingdom. That one stray atom of power would belong to someone else and God would be a limited ruler and hence not sovereign. Our God is sovereign. He rules. He is in charge. We just need to deal with that. Deal with that. Now last week, just to, just a review, remember Nebuchadnezzar's dream. There was an image. There was four kingdoms. Remember Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. That was the statue that we saw. Okay. Currently, that Daniel was living in the Babylonian kingdom at that time, dealing with Nebuchadnezzar, but he would also span that kingdom into Persia. He would prophesy about Greece and Rome, and he did these things. He prophesied about these things. Even when he first went into Babylon and this was happening, he sees this image, and he gives this prophecy. Persia wasn't even on the screen. Greece and its Hellenistic rulers were all in chaos, and Rome was just a little village by the Tiber River. None of these things looked like they had any possibility of coming to fruition. That's why we believe God's word is true. This was prophesied way in advance, way in advance that these kingdoms would rise up. We spent a lot of time talking about Rome, which is the final kingdom, and the two legs on the statue that were divided. More about that in just a second. But the five stages were this, and please try to remember this as best you can. There was the united stage, and that is the, the stage with Rome and its grandeur. You would see all the movies about Rome and the Caesars and that sort of thing. Then it went into the two-division stage, the east and west stage. Now, on the statue, you would see the two legs, the east and the west stage. Constantinople would be the head of the east, and Rome would be the head of the west. These were the ruling powers on the earth at that time. We today are living in that two-legged phase where there's eastern block of nations, and you recognize them, Russia, China, Islamic countries, that sort of thing. And the Western bloc of nations, which would be the United States, Canada, England, even Israel is becoming a world power, would be in that Western bloc now. So the nations may change, but the concept is the same thing, an East and West bloc. We know that very soon that this world is heading towards a one-world government, a one-world government. That is on the horizon. Everything is being set up for that. That won't work. We know that from Scripture. It'll, it'll deteriorate into the ten, ten kingdom stage. And last week we had a map about the ten kingdom stage. If you recall, in 2010, and this is the world divided into ten different divisions by the United Nations economically. This is something like what will happen in the ten nation phase. This might not be exactly it, probably won't be exactly it, but it'll be something like this. And it's interesting that the world today is already looking at something that the Bible has predicted thousands of years prior to this. It's not 12 nations or 12 divisions. It's not 15 divisions. It just happens to be 10 divisions. And that's what's going to happen in the future. Antichrist will break into these 10 divisions. He'll subdue three of the kings or three of those kingdoms and he will become the ruler at the end of, the end of time. And we finally know that the messianic kingdom will be set up when Jesus Christ comes back. We saw last week the statue being crushed by the stone. Now remember, this is, this is Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, and the stone was a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ crushing the feet, and this whole thing implodes. And remember in Daniel chapter 2, it says it's just chafe. 
The rest of the kingdoms are just chafe, just dust being blown out. And Jesus Christ will establish his kingdom, but he definitively will put an end to Antichrist and the end to Satan's dominion upon this earth, the rule upon this earth. Remember, Satan is called the god of this age. He usurped power in the, in the Garden of Eden. He will be definitively dealt with at that time. This is future, which I don't think is very far away. So, we have, in summary, this is, was in your notes last week, Daniel saw Babylon fall. He lived into the Persian Empire. There was a one-world government that will arise. There's a ten-nation confederation that will come on next. The Antichrist will usurp power, and Jesus Christ will crush Antichrist kingdom. That's, that's the, the summary of that whole thing. Now, why is this significant? I think God is giving us a heads-up on what to look for into the future. Do we know exactly what's going to happen, exactly and precisely how this whole thing is going to transpire, how Antichrist is going to come to power? I think the Scripture says he's going to come to power slowly, but surely, and in the middle of the tribulation period, he will exert massive force, and he will insist the world bow to him. And he will subdue three of these kingdoms who will rebel against him. And he will insist that everybody comes in order. More on that in just a few seconds. His, power will, his, his main thrust will be at the three-and-a-half-year point during the Great Tribulation. And then God decimates his kingdom. Now, this week, our study continues with three Hebrew heroes. That's what I call them, three Hebrew heroes. Young men who are, are being forced to worship before this idol and said, we will not do it. What, what are we to do? Is, there, is this a quandary for them? Is this a real decision that they have to make? And I would say, no, they knew their God, and they had a spirit within them. We will not bow to the idol that you have set up, Nebuchadnezzar, and hopefully we will get today that we will not bow to any idol that is set up within this culture. And there's plenty of them that we'll go through in just a second. So this week, we will not bow. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you do speak to us through your word. Holy Spirit, you have every person here today that you want here, and you're going to speak to each one of us individually. We will hear from you, our God, the things that you want us to hear. And Lord, as always, when you teach us, help us to apply what we have learned. In Jesus' name, amen. Idols, idols, they're all over the place. In this culture today, they're all over the place. The idol of fame, the idol of fortune, the idol of me, myself, and I. We face our, these idols daily. The modern idols, I just have a list of them. You could have your own list of them, but I came up with this. The idol of work. People are consumed with work. Consume with work to the point that and it, working is great and working is good, but if you're doing it to the point where it becomes an obsession then, and God becomes very secondary, then you have a problem. There's the idol of success, push and push, trample, trample, over anything and anyone to get ahead. There's the idol of technology. Would you agree that that is an idol today? We're all facing this technological idol that wants to input into us information that is anti-God. Then we have the idol of my image, how I look how I look. And it, it talks about, it speaks of the perfect life, how I look. Do I have perfect kids? The perfect job? Oh, we're all looking for the perfect holiday, which is, by the way, impossible when you have imperfect family members, okay? You have experienced that. Yeah, we're all looking for this perfection. Materialism, marketing, more stuff. Then there's the idol of sex that has just inundated our culture. 
It's inundated. It's on the televisions. It's in the magazines. And then, the, then it's a perversion of sex. Look, God created this. The, the, the sexual union between a man and a woman is a wonderful thing when it's under the covenant of marriage, as he has defined it. But we've gone about beyond that. Then there's the idol of money. And, and there's nothing wrong with money, but the idol of the money. You can't serve both God and money, Matthew 6, 24. And how about this, when the idol of science? And oftentimes we talk about our young people going off to university and being caught up in a science class or biology class, and then their teacher tells them about evolution, and there's no God, and they buy into it. Well, I'll tell you what, it's not just the young people. It is the old people that are buying into this thing too. Remember this, no one knows how this thing started except God. He was the only one that is here. Remember, remember the definition of science? It has to be observable. It has to be reproducible. And it has to be testable. And only God was there at the beginning. Only God was there at the beginning. Nebuchadnezzar's idol was the most popular idol of all. It's the one that we struggle with today. It's the idol of self. He was full of arrogance. He was full of pride. And by the way, how does God feel about pride? He hates pride. He hates pride. Remember in, in Proverbs chapter 6, it says, Six things God hates and seventh are abomination to him. And the first one is a haughty eye, which is a proud look. The Hebrew word is Raman. Raman. And it means to build oneself up. It's a high attitude, and it's to raise oneself up over everybody else. God disdains that. Nebuchadnezzar demanded that everyone bow and worship his idol or die. And what Nebuchadnezzar is not understanding, what the world does not understand is this. We cannot bow. The world doesn't understand this. We cannot bow to the world's idols. We must not bow. We will not bow. And I would suggest to you this. Like these Hebrew children, God will give you the strength not to bow. He will give you the strength not to bow. In verses 1 through 7, we will not bow the setting. The setting, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. Now this is, this is a huge statue. He set it up in the plain of Dura. This is a side note that you know that there is a huge base of an idol that was been discovered archaeologically in the plain of Dura that some think was the base of this idol. Just a thought. In the province of Babylon, and King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the province to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. So anybody that's anybody in that culture, they're coming to this dedication. So, so all these guys show up. Verse 4, Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, the psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. You're going to do this or die. Do or die. And whatever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately. No hesitation. Notice that's immediately. This is quite different than what happened to these three Hebrew guys where there was hesitation. So you can see that they had favor with him at least at one point, and he was hesitant to do what he, what he did. In the midst of the fiery furnace, cast them in. So at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, all these instruments, all the peoples and languages, fell down and worshipped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So, I want you to picture this. 
this dedication service, all these people are all over the place. This king has called all of his, all of his leaders, and know what happens? Everybody bows. That music starts to go out, and everybody bows, and you watch what happens here. You have three dudes in the midst of who knows how many thousands of people with this death threat that has just gone out, and they know that they are facing imminent death, and they stand. Now, how do you think they are feeling inside themselves? You talk about pressure. You talk about pressure. They are feeling the pressure. I want you to get that feeling of what the courage that these three guys had to have to stand up in the midst of it. These are real people in a real place with a real threat. This is not just some fantasy story. This is real action happened. So just get that picture. Can you imagine the pressure? Now, question is this. Why would Nebuchadnezzar make the image? Why make the image? Nebuchadnezzar remembered the image but forgot the God who gave the image. And I think it's a demonstration of his arrogance and his pride, and he's looking at himself. How quickly we get into that. Who is really behind this pride decision? Now, when you're thinking about this, whenever you get haughty and built up, Who's really behind this? Well, we're not told in the text, but we can certainly extrapolate from Scripture who's behind it. We're not told, but recall all the kingdoms of the earth that have risen on the earth, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, up to today, are controlled or under the influence of the God of this age, which would be Satan, the small g of this age, the God of this world, has blinded the mind of unbelievers so they not see the light of the gospel of Christ. Jesus needs to break in. So, remember this, and re recall this, recall this. It's not a flesh and blood battle that we deal with when we're talking about pride or anything else. It's not a flesh and blood battle. And we learn in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, that we're fighting against, it's a spiritual battle, and we're fighting against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this age, spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. And I want to suggest to you something. We have no idea what all those things are, but I think that there's a hierarchy in the demonic realm just like there's a hierarchy in the angelic realm. Satan's a copycat, okay? And these things are in different areas of control over different geographical areas, and there's real spiritual warfare that happens. Okay, that's all the deeper we need to go into that one. But what I also want you to notice is this, the contrast between the image in chapter 2, which we studied last week, and the gold image today. Bob Diefenbaugh puts it this way. In chapter 2, the image was of divine origin. It came from God. God gave the image. It was only a vision. It was made of different metals, not all gold. See, Nebuchadnezzar is extolling himself with his all gold thing. So it was different metals. It was not an object of worship. It was privately revealed to Nebuchadnezzar, and it was well described. In chapter 3, it's of human origin. Now also think about this. Some commentators believe this is up to 18 years later. What do you do over time? Forget. Forget. Even some dramatic event, it just has become more clouded in Nebuchadnezzar's mind. It was made only of gold. It was an object of worship. It was revealed to all his kingdom all of his kingdom, and it described only generally, and then the men were commanded to bow down. So, 
The image is, again, the image is all gold. It's not a mixture because it's extolling him. Now, what might he be thinking? I'm always wondering, why would he do something like this? Possibly it's because he wants his, his kingdom to continue. God says, oh, these are going to follow. And Nebuchadnezzar says, oh, I want to make the whole gold image so Babylon's going to continue forever. What does Nebuchadnezzar not understand? That God raises up kings. God puts down kings. God is sovereign, not Nebuchadnezzar or any human. Any human. So it's, he has this impressive statue that he builds. The height is 60 cubits or 90 feet tall. Its width is 6 cubits or 9 feet at its base. And the command is this, bow or die. And it's immediate. Remember that word, immediate. If you don't do this immediately, you will bow or die. Now, I have a picture of an image. Now, this is the old image, okay, what Nebuchadnezzar saw. What he created was a full gold image. Now, I could have put the gold guy up here, but I just wanted to remind you again, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, divided kingdom, ten-nation confederation. Those are the things that we really want to indelibly imprint in our minds. His image has no other kingdoms represented whatsoever. In verse 2 to 3, the statue is dedicated, and all of Babylon's uppity-ups are invited to this. And guess what? If you're, <laughs> you're going to get to that. You're not going to say, oh, I have an office business meeting. And they can't. No, you're going to make it to this meeting. You're going to be to this dedication. And the command went out when you hear a blast and all those instruments that you're going to fall down and you're going to worship or you're going to be thrown into a burning, fiery furnace. Now, I don't know if he had that furnace kind of just set up right there and going, okay, bow to this or get thrown into this. Don't know if that happened. Could have. Could have. The people were afraid enough that they all bowed. They all bowed. They all complied for fear of death. They obeyed the command. Now, I want to suggest to you something. Nebuchadnezzar is insisting that the world at his time bow before him, bow before his idol. There will be one coming at the ten-nation confederation stage. He busts into this. That'll be the Antichrist. And he will insist on worship. Now, if you would, turn to Revelation chapter 13, 11 through 18. I believe this is a picture of what Antichrist will demand in the tribulation period. Revelation chapter 13, verse 11. Everybody there? Everybody happy? You ready? Okay. Now, earlier in this chapter, the Antichrist had received a mortal head wound and died. He supernaturally resurrected. This is going to happen in the tribulation period. The Antichrist is the one that is going to come and, and be the one that, that, that acts as the Christ instead of Christ. He's going to be the fake Christ, the instead of Christ. And then he's going to have a guy that's going to direct all worship to him. He's called the false prophet. And we're being introduced to that dude right here. So in verse 11, it says this, Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, meaning out of the nations that are not Israel, all some out of, out of the nations of the earth. He had two horns. Now that Antichrist is in charge of ten horns. So he's less powerful. He's less powerful, but still influential. He comes out like a lamb. Isn't that interesting? 
like a lamb. Isn't that how Satan comes masquerading as an angel of light? Like a lamb. Kind of, you know, everything is masquerade. But spoke like a dragon, who he really is, Satan. And he exercises all authority of the first beast, which would be the Antichrist, in his presence, and causes the earth and those who dwell on it to worship the first beast. Now, there is something called the counterfeit trinity. We believe in the trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There is a counterfeit trinity. Satan always is a counterfeiter. You're going to see that more in just a second. Satan is the counterfeit father. The Antichrist is the counterfeit son. And the false prophet that is directing worship to the beast is the counterfeit Holy Spirit. And as you know, the Holy Spirit directs all worship to Jesus. He takes no glory on himself. So when you're in a church that is overemphasizing the Holy Spirit, that would be off. The Holy Spirit is God, but you can't have an overemphasis. The Holy Spirit will always point people to Jesus. So, back to the text. And worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. And I tried to give you an update on that. He performs great signs so that even fire came down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives, oh, just like say, he's a deceiver. He deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted. Notice he was granted to do. God is in charge. He's allowing this to happen for his, for, it was his desire for this to happen. It's his plan that's being worked out. To do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the face of the earth to make an image of the beast. So the false prophet wants an image of the beast made who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast. And watch this, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many who was not worshipped the image of the beast to be killed. What was Nebuchadnezzar doing? If you don't worship the beast, what happens to you? You're killed. If you don't worship the Antichrist beast picture, you are killed. This is a picture of what is happening in the past is going to happen in the future. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, slave and free, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead. Pause there for just a second. When you are saved, when you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit seals you for ownership. You are his property. Okay? What is, the, what is Satan doing here? He's doing a counterfeit sealing by having people that are going to give themselves over to Satan take the mark of the beast. This is a counterfeit sealing. Satan just copies one thing after another that God does. That no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark of the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is the wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. It is 666, which is the number of man. So, this is a picture as to what's going to happen in the future. Now, many people, if you're coming in here, you're new, you might not know what the tribulation period is. This tribulation period is this. It's a seven-year period of time at the end of time when God pours out his wrath on the earth, on an unbelieving world. He pours out his wrath in an unbelieving world. It starts in Daniel 9.27, we see, when the Antichrist, who comes in as a good guy at the beginning, signs a peace covenant with Israel. That marks the start of the tribulation period. Now, I believe that the church will be 
exited before this happens. That's called the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. The church is taken out before this happens. We'll be talking about it extensively, that extensively, when we get into the book of Revelation and that sort of thing. So, with that, now you have some background there. Let's go to verses 8 and 12. We will not bow the accusation. Now, you're living in a world that wants you to follow the idols of the world, and there's going to be accusations against you. There's nothing new under the sun. Okay, these guys are going to have an accusation. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans, these are the priests, either the jealous priest, came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, Oh, king, live forever. You, that's flattery, isn't it? Oh, king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, the psaltery, the symphony, and all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall and worship shall be cast in the midst of the firing, burning furnace. Do you remember that, king? Do you remember that edict? Do you remember that, Nebuchadnezzar? There are certain Jews. Can you just hear the prejudice? There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, have not paid you due regard. Oh, you're a, you're a great king, and they're not paying you regard. Can you see them just stirring it up? They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. Now, this reeks of jealousy. This reeks of jealousy. Notice who is plotting. It's the Chaldeans, motivated by jealousy. And again, these guys are the wisest in the land. These are the ones that Nebuchadnezzar always calls on to give him information. They failed at the time when Daniel gave the, the interpretation of, the, of who the, what the idol was in the dream. They were saved from death by Daniel. Oh, how they so quickly forgot. The accusation is this. Certain Jews prejudiced do not serve or worship your gods or your image or your image. Certain Jews, they're plotting. They're plotting. They've been saved from death, and now they want these three guys who have been put probably in a position of authority over them. By the way, we want these guys taken out. That's really what's going on here. The Babylonian world is demanding the people of God worship an idol. Now look at Romans 13 is very clear. We are to obey our government, right? We're, unless the government insists we do something contrary to what God's word tells us. Then what does Peter say? Peter says in, in Acts chapter 5, it is, it is better that we, that we obey God. It is better that we get 529. Obey God. It's better to obey God rather than men. Now, what the world does not understand, and I'm going to say this over and over and over, what the world does not understand is this. We cannot bow. We cannot bow as the people of God to an idol. We cannot bow. We will not bow. And for each one of us, folks, that remains to be seen. That remains to be seen. Each one of us, I won't bow. I'm Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Well, 50 or 75 of those other Jewish guys bowed. The vast majority bowed. There's only a remnant that will stand for God. Only a few that will have the 
Holy Spirit, rod of iron up their spine, allow them to stand, no matter what the culture throws at them. Only a remnant. We can't have Exodus 20, verse 4 and 5. It's the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Any likeness of heaven, anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them. Very clear that God has said, we must not, we cannot bow down to idols. In, in, in Psalm chapter 24, verse 1 through 4, it says this, The earth is the Lord, and the fullness thereof, the world of those who dwell within. He is founded upon the seas and established upon the waters. Whose earth is it? The earth is the Lord's. Satan is a temporary usurper of control of these nations. Oh, but the earth is the Lord's. He is in control. He is, he is the ultimate ruler. Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy presence? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted his soul to an idol. We cannot, we must not worship an idol. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we see these words. Now the setting here is that Paul is giving a review of what has happened during the Exodus. Our fathers were, were under the cloud, the Shekinah glory of God. All passed through the Red Sea, he says. All were baptized into in Moses. All ate, and, ate the manna and drank from the spiritual rock. And then he says this in verse 6. Now these things become our example. See, there's a whole contingent of Christendom that suggests we can take the Old Testament and just kind of throw it out. That's the Old Testament. Oh, no. Oh, no. These have become our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lust. We are to learn. We are to learn. We are to be in the entire word of God. It is all germane to us. And do not become idolaters as were some of them. Do not do that. In verse 11 it says this, Now all these things happen to them as examples. They're examples for us. And they were written for our admonition. Oh, is the, is the, New, is the Old Testament valid for today and valuable? Yes. Okay, you can say yes. Yes, yes it is. Yes, it is. Romans 15.4 says this, Everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. This whole thing, this whole thing that you, even the book of Leviticus we learned on Tuesday nights, which you can come on Tuesday nights, by the way, were valuable to us. Valuable to us. We cannot worship idols. And you know, people have died throughout history, throughout history, and today, more than any time in history, by the way, there are, the Christian church is being martyred. Well, you know that because I've mentioned it before, but most people don't. Most people don't know that. In the past, remember in Rome, if you would not bow to Caesar, you went into the, what they called the circus. And that's where the lions came in, and that's where the beasts came in, and that's where these people were torn apart, and they would not bow. They could not bow. They would not renounce the Lord Jesus Christ. Today it's happening in India, and in the Islamic countries, and the communist countries, all because someone mentions the name of Jesus. All because they mention the name of Jesus. We will not bow. Newsweek, January 4th, 2018, says this. There's more martyrs today 
than at any time in history. That's Newsweek. That's not a Christian magazine. That is Newsweek. That is what's happening in our world today. These Jews would not bow. Most Jews bowed. Most Jews had become Babylonized, indoctrinated. There was only a remnant that did not. Folks, this is the remnant. This, hopefully we're the remnant. We will not bow to the gods of this world, to the idols of this world. Verse 12, it says, These, these men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. Look, I think Nebuchadnezzar thought he was one of these gods. Worship me like you worship these other gods. The pressure to compromise, to bow, to conform, to fit in is enormous. We talk about the kids with peer pressure. Excuse me, we all have peer pressure. And it's getting worse, folks. Look, at there is the cry throughout the culture today for everyone to bow to liberal theology. God is love. And we would agree with that. That's a tremendous attribute of God. But it does not cover allowing you to do whatever you want under the guise of love. That everyone goes to heaven. That's universalism. We would like everyone to go to heaven. Everyone has an opportunity to go to heaven. But the vast majority are entering through the what? Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate. For narrow is the gate, but broad is the way that leads to destruction. The broad gate is that leads to destruction. The majority are going through the broad gate. That's a tragedy. That's a tragedy. There's a right way. Then we are to bow before, before the LBGT movement. Now look at Because we do not agree with that movement does not mean we hate them. Isn't that amazing? Because we don't agree with that, you are automatically stamped, boom, hater. Boom, intolerant. No, I can't. We, we cannot bow to that idol. They don't realize it isn't something that we just that we just love to stand against these people just to stand against them. No, no, it's it's a sin, and we cannot bow to that idol. We cannot. The people don't realize it, folks. It is not hate speech to tell somebody the truth. You know what I call that? It is love speech. The ultimate love that we can give anybody is to tell them the truth, and we do it gently. We don't put our fingers in their face. We do it gently. We give them the gospel message. We tell them how much Jesus loves them. But you cannot be in that sin. We know in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you cannot live that lifestyle and go to the kingdom of God. But thankfully, in 6.11 it says, so, such were some of you, but you were washed. You, were, you can come out of that. You can come out of it. The culture doesn't want you to come out of it, but you can. You can. Look at how are we going to stand for these idols? The question is, will you stand? Will you stand or will you cave? Will you cave to the idol of globalization, open borders, climate change, uniting the world? Will you cave to the god of evolution, the god of government, the god of education? The pressure is on, folks. The pressure is on each one of us. Will you cave or will you stand? And folks, for each one of us, it remains to be seen. Will you be indoctrinated into this culture? Because remember what happens to the human brain. When you say something long enough, Joseph Goebbels, Goebbels, remember he had it in World War II with the Nazis, indoctrinating a whole nation against the Jews. You say it long enough, supported by the government, supported by the media, supported by the educational system, and the human brain starts to receive it as the truth. Don't go there. 
people. How do you do that? It's a must to be prepared in advance. Know what's coming. Be prepared in advance. Like Daniel in 1.8. Remember, he purposed in his heart not to defile himself with the king's delicacies. You purpose in your heart. You purpose in your heart with a prepared life. A prepared life is a life dwelling at home with Jesus Christ. You know what that means? That means you're all in. You're not on the outskirts of this thing. If you're on the outskirts of this, if you're a Christian that's right on the edge, and, and, and you kind of do a little bit of Jesus and a lot of the world, you might be saved. There's such, there's such a thing as carnal Christianity. Oh, but you're not, you're, you're not, you're not victorious. You're, it's easy for you to be deceived. It's easy for you to buy into the lies. It's easy to do. A prepared life is dwelling with Christ, at home with Christ. It's the only way to stand when the test comes. Lukewarm, toe-in Christianity will crumble. And remember this, when the test comes, if you don't remember anything else, remember this, God will give you the strength at the time. You might not feel like you can do it now, but God will give you the strength at the time to stand. If you are abiding in Christ, if you are menno at home in Christ, if you are walking in the Spirit, if you are living this thing out like Jesus wants, we are a follower of Jesus. We're not just saying, oh, go get him, Jesus. No, we're following him. We're following him. For Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it was test day. It was test day. Verse 13 through 18. We will not bow the test. The Nebuchadnezzar, now watch how cheerful he is. In rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Could it possibly be true that anyone could disobey this? That you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up. The hubris, the arrogance is just palpable. Now, if you are ready, notice he gives them a chance. It wasn't immediate. Gives them a chance. Now, if you are ready at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, the psaltery, the symphony, and all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made good, but if you do not worship, if you do not bow, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? What a threat. And because he says this immediate in the, in the, into that furnace, my suggestion is this, that furnace is right there. Here's the image, here's the furnace. Bow and worship this, or go into that. That's what I think is happening. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, what courage. You talk about the Holy Spirit, rod of iron, up your spine at a critical moment. We have no need to answer you in this matter. Now, they're not arrogant. They're just very forthright. If this is the case, our God whom we serve, what a testimony. What a testimony. All in faith is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king, but let it be known to you, O king. We do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Let you know, culture, that we are the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will not serve your gods. We will not bow. We cannot bow. We must not bow. 
We are the people of God. We are the people of God. Now, did you ever wonder this? If faced with this awful trial, could I stand, would I stand, or would I actually refuse to bow? Again, remains to be seen for each one of us. Remains to be seen. The test is simple, bow or die. It seems that these three, again, were the only ones. And notice Nebuchadnezzar's posture. Rage and fury. He's in hysterics. You can just see the spit flying. This is your last chance, Nebuchadnezzar says. Surely they will bow. What do you think these guys were thinking about? You think they might have been thinking about Joseph who would not bow? You think they might have thought, these, these guys are schooled in the scripture. Ezra 7.10 says this, Ezra prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it. You think they were prepared? Something might have come into their minds that helped them during this time. Whatever it was, in the face of Nebuchadnezzar's rage, facing a horrible death, they drew their strength somehow from God. We hear these amazing words of faith. But if not, be it known to you, O king, verse 18, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. We will not do it. We can't do it, king. You don't understand this. We can't do it. A firm conviction. I want you to fast forward 1,500 years to a place in Israel. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 16 through 20, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And he says these words. And by extension, he's saying this to us today. This is to the disciples then. But by extension, there's some application for us. Behold, I send you out as sheep. He's sending each one of us out. This Christianity that we have is not, is not just in my little shell. Oh, no, it's out. It is out. It is for the people to see. It is to be lived out. I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves who want to devour you. He's talking about the Pharisees here devouring the disciples. But Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to council, scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony for them and to the Gentiles. Look, this isn't happening here. But you go to Indonesia. You go to Iran. You go to Iraq. You go to other places in this world, and this is happening today. This is happening today. But when they deliver you up, do not worry. Isn't that great? Okay, that's going to have to be supernatural. Okay, because if something like that's happening, there's going to go into a little worry phase. Okay? God will give you the strength about how you should speak or what you should speak. For it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. Don't worry about what to say. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Oh, what an opportunity. God will supernaturally give you the strength to make it through. You're not going to do it on your own. You won't have that kind of courage. That's God. That's God working in you. Listen to this. Remember this when you're tested. In life, there are all kinds of tests. Remember James chapter 1, verse 2? They're, they're pokleos. They come in various shapes and sizes like polka dots all over the place. You know your life. You've been through it. You've been through all kinds of them. That's the test. And remember this. God will give you the strength at the time. Say that with me. God will give you strength at the time. He will. God gave Polycarp 
the bishop of Smyrna the strength at the time. Listen to this. Now, you have heard about Polycarp before, and I've shared this with you. And it's not new to most of you, but it is so riveting, his story. Marcus Aurelius was Caesar, demanding Caesar worship, demanding Polycarp to bow. And Polycarp's captors are sent to his house. And we pick it up here. Polycarp left his bed to welcome them, ordered a meal prepared for them, and then asked for an hour alone to pray. The soldiers were so impressed with Polycarp's advanced age and composure that they began to wonder why they had been sent to take him. But as soon as he had finished his prayers, they put him on the donkey and brought him into the city. As he entered the stadium with, the guard, with his guards, a voice from heaven was heard by all the people around, be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. Can you imagine that? You're going to the stake to be burned, and God speaks to you, and people hear it. Be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. What do you think that did to Polycarp? Rod of iron up his spine. Brought before the tribunal and the crowd, Polycarp refused to deny Christ. And the proconsul begged him, consider yourself and have pity on your great age. Reproach Christ and I will release you. That is the word all throughout this world. Reproach Christ and you'll be released. They don't understand. We can't. We can't. Polycarp replied, 86 years I have served him, and he has never once wronged me. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Threatened with wild beast and fire, Polycarp stood his ground. What are you waiting for, he said. Do whatever you please. The crowd demanded Polycarp's death, gathering wood for the fire, preparing to tie him to the stake. Leave me, he said. He who will give me strength, who will give me strength to sustain the fire will help me not to flinch from this pile. You don't have to secure me here. You don't have to put to secure me here. As soon as Polycarp finished his prayer, the fire was lit, but it leaped up around him, leaving him unburned until the people convinced a soldier to plunge a sword into him. And when he did, so much blood gushed out that the fire was immediately extinguished. The soldiers then placed his body into the fire and burned it to ashes, and some Christians gathered him. Polycarp did this. We will not bow. God will give you the strength at the time not to bow. We won't do it. more current one today, Corey Ten Boom is another example. She wrote this. Corey was once ministering to a small African country where a new government had come to power. Just that week, the new regime had begun secretly, systematically putting Christians to death. Very common throughout the world. As the people gathered at the little church where she was to speak that Sunday, fear and tension was written on every face. Can you imagine if that was happening here? This is real. This has happened to her. She read 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 through 14, talking about rejoicing when you can suffer for Christ. She went on to say, tell them this story, this congregation, this story, true story. Her father, Daddy, she had said one day, I'm afraid that I will never be strong enough to be a martyr for Jesus Christ. Tell me, her father wisely responded, when you take a trip from Harlem to Amsterdam, when do I give you the money for the trip? Three weeks before? No, Daddy. You give me the money for the ticket just as we get on the train. That's right, he replied, and so it is with God's strength. Our wise Father in heaven knows when you're going to need things too. Today you do not need the strength to be a martyr. 
But as soon as you are called upon for the honor, for the honor of facing death for Jesus, he will supply the strength you need just in time. She says this, I took great comfort in my father's advice. Corey told her audience, later I had to suffer for Jesus in a Nazi concentration camp. He indeed gave me all the courage and power that I needed. Peter was given strength at the time when he was crucified upside down. And history tells us across from his wife, his bride. Paul was given the strength at the time. All the apostles, all the early church was given strength at the time. The church today throughout the world has been given strength at the time. If we like Polycarp, Corey, the martyrs throughout the ages are living life at home in Christ, Jesus will give you the strength at the time to navigate any trial, to not bow to the trial. A must to not bow is this. All in, not toe in Christianity. It's his strength in you. It's not you. It's him working through you. Conclusion, we will not bow. There's a guy named Donald Campbell that brings us to reality most people to reality. He says this, those who believe the saying, every man has a price. You ever hear that? Every man has a price. Just give him enough. Should consider well the response of these men in this crisis when their lives were at stake. They could not be bought for any price. Can that be said of us? Can that be said of us? Chuck Smith says this, we shall all face the fiery furnace. God never promised us immunity from the trials. Quite the opposite that those who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He goes on to say this, my human nature would seek the easy path. But the easy path usually leads to nowhere. What these people have, they had commitment. They had commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ and confidence in God. They knew that they could be delivered. They didn't know that God was going to do this. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they did not know this. It could have been a whole different story, like it is for most in the world today. He will deliver us from your hand, O king, one way or another. Even if we burn in the fire, we'll be delivered from you. Nebuchadnezzar, we will not bow. Listen to these words. Never, never, never forget. Abide in Christ. Be all. And know this. God will give you the strength at the time. One more time. All together. God will give you strength at the time when you need it to take a stand and not bow. And folks, that the world may know the true God. When we do not bow, that the world may know the true God. We cannot bow. We must not bow. We will not bow. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. Three men and a king. Three men and a king. The king thought he had all the power and he had all control. But you behind the scenes are, work, are orchestrating everything. And you gave these men the strength to stand in an impossible situation. May that strength be within each one of us when test day comes for us. However that test might appear, it might not be a martyr situation. It could be a physical, emotional, whatever it is, that your strength will flow through us because we are prepared in advance, because we are all in, you will give us the strength to make it through. Thank you for teaching us today things that you want us to know. In Jesus' name, amen.